Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. Today's guest was requested by you, the listeners. I'm excited to bring on Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Rule Investment Media and board member of Battle Financial. Rick is an investor and speculator with 49 years of experience. In this episode, we discuss why Rick is a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. We talk about the war on savers, energy idiocy, his thesis on uranium, investing in gold, silver, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rick. Thanks again for the recommendation, and I hope you will too. Investor and speculator Rick Rule, it is so great to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us. Certainly a pleasure. I look forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. And a lot of viewers have actually requested you. So I'm especially excited to have this conversation. And we were just talking about how you have 49 years of investing experience. And from what I understand, you retired at some point and then you came back. Can you fill us in on what you've been up to, Rick? Yeah. In fact, I even failed the the uh, prelude to retirement. Uh, when I announced my retirement from Sprott, uh, I sort of thought, what would I do with my time and went through a period of anxiety about three days before I decided that what I would really do is continue to work very hard, but return to the parts of work that I enjoyed, which is to say securities analysis and credit analysis and give up uh, anything that resembled an administrative task or as much of uh, my formerly regulated activity as I could. So I'm still working very hard, but I'm doing really what I should have done at age 40. I'm doing a lot of what I enjoy and not very much at all of what I don't enjoy. It's a wonderful position to be in. Certainly. Um, tell us a bit more though. Like what are you, what are you working on specifically these days? Well, rural investment media is uh, uh, <laughs> very much a work in progress. It's designed to be uh, an educational tool around natural resource and deep value investing. Uh, we have about 80,000 people on our list. I popularize it by ranking people's natural resource portfolios, which is to say I provide them information that's immediately useful to them. But I provide a range of other free services there too, including uh, an, an accredited investors list, which is also free, that informs people when I'm doing a private placement with my own money no guarantee, of course, that they can get in those placements, but I tell them why and what uh, as a sort of an educational thing. And we also do uh, every year an in-person investment conference. The last one was in Boca Raton, Florida. And next year we will do between four and six virtual conferences, online conferences uh, around topics like uranium, like exploration, like streaming and royalty like private placements, like oil and gas, basically eight and a half hour day long uh, presentations. These are subscriber based. You have to pay to attend, but uh, absolute no questions asked money back guarantee if you don't think you got your money's worth. So I'm fairly busy in that business. Yeah, I love it. And you mentioned the Boca conference. I'm sitting here in Miami and I did see the lineup that you had this summer. It was quite impressive. Um, you mentioned some of the areas of focus for you, and I do want to dig in and explore these areas, but I was hoping maybe we can just start um, with more of like your macro view. What is kind of the big picture for you, maybe globally and even domestically here in the U.S.? Uh, let me give you a disclaimer first. Uh, I'm a credit analyst, which means that I take a very unrosy view of the world usually. Uh, 
I laugh that I've called 17 of the last three economic declines absolutely accurately. Uh, the truth is I'm a long-term optimist because I'm optimistic about humankind. I'm a short-term pessimist because uh, human beings are such political animals. Uh, I believe that the excesses of 40 years of artificially low interest rates and artificially induced liquidity uh, and systematic overregulation and systematic uh, faith by the citizenry in the government uh, will probably cause us three or four very hard years, uh, not too far in the future. I believe that the damage will be, <laughs> like Warren Buffett would say, severe but survivable. And I intend to uh, invest aggressively towards that period of time because I think there are certain demographic trends around the world, uh, including, and I don't want to sound too woke, uh, inclusion of women in the labor force uh, and an increasing internationalization uh, of the workforce through both technology and communications mediums. So while I see the intermediate and longer term future of humankind as very bright, I think we have a reckoning to go through to get there. Uh, I hope that was sufficient enough for you. Definitely sufficient. I, I really like that. I took a bunch of notes and I, I like, um, you know, you're a long term optimist, a short term pessimist and kind of alluding to some of the reasons why. Let's focus on like that shorter term reckoning like where where do you see that manifesting itself what are some of those areas where it might manifest itself well rising interest rates uh, which need to happen by the way uh, affects every sector of society uh, if you revert to mean uh, just in the united states market uh, over 40 years the u.s 10-year treasury relative to the cpi stated rate of inflation and I'm not going to argue in favor of the CPI as a measurement, but that's the most widely quoted measurement. The U.S. 10-year Treasury has traded for a positive real yield, which is to say the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury has been in excess of the CPI rate. If the CPI rate is, as Congress states it, at 9%, that would suggest that the 10-year Treasury should be yielding 10% as opposed to 4%. The 30-year fixed mortgage has traditionally traded uh, above the U.S. 10-year, which would suggest a 30-year fixed mortgage rate at 10.5 or 11. Can you imagine the impact on house prices and house affordability if we had a reversion to mean? Uh, on the other hand, uh, credit markets are supposed to reward savers. The manipulated credit markets that we've seen in the United States for the last 40 years really are a manifestation of a political war, a war by the politicians on the savers for the benefit of spenders. You do not spend your way to prosperity. You save your way to prosperity. <clears throat> so I see that being problematic. I see, too, uh, not just in the U.S. market, but around the world, uh, an increasing share of GDP going to the collective. For most working Americans, the cost of their government, federal, state, and local, exceeds the cost of shelter, food, and energy combined. Obviously, the more you take for the center, the less you leave for the family. A, a very, very, very poor trend from my point of view. Yeah. Um, 
and what it means for like the the working Americans, and you you characterized it as like a war on on savers. Do you see a point where okay, so do you think it gets worse, or do you see a point where it can get better for um, you know the savers, the American family? <laughs> That's up to the American family. Uh, it would be highly amusing if the federal government gave a T bill auction and nobody showed up. Uh, that is to say that the idea that you get paid 4% in a currency that's depreciating by 9%, in other words, that you assign to the federal government 5% of your purchasing power every year for 10 years, <laughs> uh, it, it's odd that people see that as a viable option. I think the first time they gave a treasury auction, nobody showed, uh, that would send some very broad shocks through the political system and the economic system. It would be ugly for bond markets. It would be ugly for equities markets. It would drain for a while liquidity out of all financial markets. It would literally shock the hell out of everybody concerned. Um, would it create a better future? Or would the voters cause the political classes to uh, resume uh, not selling treasuries at all, but rather, but rather counterfeiting, which is to say quantitative easing, printing their own money without having to borrow it from savers. Interesting questions all, and I don't have an answer. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, and I'm so grateful to have you on just to kind of, you know, illuminate on some of these ideas. Like it does make you wonder um, if people are even aware of the problem or like the, like the inner workings of like how we even got here. What do you think? Mercifully, younger people are becoming aware at a great rate. Uh, when I feel pessimistic myself, I remember back to the point in time when I was in university. Uh, I couldn't spell libertarian. Uh, now I think there's 160,000 young people and students for liberty worldwide. So uh, among very young people, the adaptation of the values around individual initiative and private enterprise uh, is growing very fast. And the consequence of that is that I feel, uh, I feel very hopeful. I've uh, very recently mentored young students in places as far away as <laughs> Jakarta, Indonesia, and Goma in the Congo. And I need to say that contrary to many <laughs> old, bald, guys like myself, uh, I'm extremely excited uh, about the direction that young adults are taking in the world. I like that. And that plays into the long-term optimism. You mentioned demographic trends um, as being like one of the reasons to be optimistic. Can, can we explore a bit further your views on the demographic trends, maybe your thesis there? Uh, well, by demographics, perhaps I mean... Um, the sort of liberal distribution of opportunity uh, in Western economies, most Western economies, the demographics are becoming less good, uh, which is to say that the population is becoming um, older uh, and the structures are becoming more rigid and more stratified. Uh, what I really like that I see is that in the last 40 years, labor force participation as an example by women has doubled. Uh, the idea that somehow in my youth, 
society had the view that all good ideas came from old, bald, fat white guys, uh, I think was harmful. Uh, and I think labor force participation among women is a great thing. I think, too, that uh, the benefits of education and the benefits of uh, communication means that we will see much greater participation from emerging and frontier markets. One of the things that society doesn't give itself credit for uh, over the last 40 years is the incredible feat of weight of taking 1.5 billion people out of abject poverty <laughs> up to the point where they are just plain poor. When I look back over 40 years and I think about what has caused me optimism, it's the fact that uh, despite our collective idiocy, our individual initiative, uh, persistence, tenacity, brilliance, is such that four or five young kids can take over a garage in Sunnyvale, California, and out pops Google, uh, or out pops Facebook, or out pops Apple. Uh, that's just a wonderful set of circumstances. A group of young people can get together and still change the entire world. What's really hopeful to me is that as a consequence of distributed education, and communications technology, that uh, garage doesn't have to be in Sunnyvale anymore. It could be in Lagos. Uh, it could be in Bishkek. Uh, it could be in La Paz. Uh, and it's really difficult when you think about the fact that the world is opening up opportunity to almost 8 billion people as, a, as opposed to the old club that was afforded opportunity when I broke into business. You almost can't help but be optimistic. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to some other um, areas that I know are of interest to you and you have, um, you know, deep knowledge and expertise. And one of those areas is energy. Um, and I was hoping we could kind of get your views. There's a lot of talk. You know, we, we can talk domestically. We could also talk about what's going on in the rest of the world. When it comes to energy, like what, what are the things that are most top of mind for you today? Um, <laughs> the idiocy of our energy policies. Uh, and, and by the way, I don't want to come across as being anti-alternative uh, or so-called green energy. Uh, there are uh, about 1.2 billion people in the world that have no access to electricity. They want to live like you and I do. There are another 2 billion people on Earth who only have access to intermittent or unaffordable energy. They, too, want to live like you and I do. Do we need more wind power? Absolutely. How about solar? Yes, indeed. Geothermal? Let's have that, too. Hydro? That, too. Oh, yes. And then energy uh, that is cheap, dense, and works on a broad scale, which is to say nuclear oil, gas, and coal. We need all of the above. My belief is that despite the protests of the big thinkers, you know, the Bidens, the Trudeaus, the Merkels, uh, that noted uh, energy physicist Greta Thornburg, uh, that peak oil demand will occur somewhere between 2040 and 2045. It's interesting to note that several trillion dollars uh, have been spent in the last 20 years on various forms of alternative energy. And the market share of hydrocarbons has fallen from 82% to 81%. Uh, 
which is to say an investment of $3 trillion reduced our demand for oil and gas <laughs> by 1%. Uh, we need to rethink lots about our energy policies. Certainly. You mentioned like that you don't you don't want to come off as like anti anti the alternatives and I don't think you you come off that way but it makes me wonder like given the situation that we've seen transpire in Europe for example um, and you were mentioning younger people kind of being more aware of um, you know of, of certain things do you think people are going to start to wake up to the idea that like yes you need fossil fuels now to kind of give you the bridge to even get to the alternatives where they're more viable at scale like what do you think I think people are waking up to that. Uh, you've seen popular protests around Europe around the rising cost of living, including energy. You've even seen Greta Thornburg saying that the Germans can't shut down their nuclear plants. That doesn't mean, by the way, that in places like Spain or Italy, where the sun shines, that you shouldn't build big solar arrays, particularly on top of warehouses and you know, discount centers like Costco, where that sun can provide basically free uh, energy for air conditioning uh, during very hot periods of time. But it does mean that places like Germany and Sweden, places that are in the far north where the sun doesn't shine, probably shouldn't uh, put most of their energy future in things like solar. Uh, my suspicion is that the world has been through a very prosperous 40 years. Uh, and that has enabled us to retreat from arithmetic and physics to narrative. Uh, it allowed us to buy into some very fanciful, although very attractive, fairy tales. Uh, and my suspicion is that this period of excess prosperity is probably unwinding. And the consequence of that is that, again, I believe that there will be a, a retreat to arithmetic, to physics, to engineering uh, and a retreat away from narrative, however pleasant that narrative might be. Yeah, a retreat away from narrative. Um, I want to bring up a topic that's kind of playing out right now. And the only reason I kind of paying attention personally is I, I drive, full disclosure, I drive a, my car uses diesel, um, diesel fuel. Right. Prices are very high and there's headlines about a shortage here. I think the last I saw was like a 25 day supply. Have you thought about this? Like, can you weigh in on the diesel situation here in the U.S.? And is it a very severe situation? Is it surprising? What do you think? Uh, I don't think it'll be severe. I think markets work. I just don't think you're going to like the price you're going to pay for a while. Markets do work. Uh, high prices encourage supply and they reduce demand. However unpleasant that might be for a diesel consumer like yourself. Surprise, no. Uh, if my memory serves me well, we haven't permitted a greenfield uh, refinery, uh, particularly a, a, a middle distillate, middleweight uh, refinery, since 1976 or 1977. I suspect myself that uh, demand for refined petroleum products has grown a bit since 1976 or 1977. We have managed to increase our output by debottlenecking the existing refineries and making the existing refineries um, 
more efficient, but there's a, a limit to what you can do in terms of increasing the supply of refined products if you don't increase the <laughs> capacity uh, of the existing network. It's interesting to note that in the United States, uh, for some period of time, we were able to continue to meet our own needs and develop a strong export industry simply because the U.S. refining industry on an absolute basis, but also on a competitive basis, was so much better than the industry in other parts of the world. We could take heavy, sour crudes from Venezuela and Mexico, as an example, uh, into our Gulf Coast refineries. And as a consequence of our technological expertise, not only use those feedstocks to support U.S. demand, but also uh, contribute to a balance of payments surplus. When Mexican and Venezuelan supplies fell as a consequence of a lack of reinvestment by their national oil companies in their resources, we had and have a lot of surplus heavy and sour refining capacity in the U.S. Gulf Coast. We have access to heavy sour crudes from Canada, but we have refused for 20 years to support the Keystone Pipeline which would have delivered as much as a million barrels a day of much needed feedstock to the U.S. refining complexes on the Gulf Coast. Had that happened, we wouldn't have a shortage of diesel. We'd have a surplus of diesel. Yeah. Um, and that, like going back, that was, I think, the Biden administration, like the first executive order, if I'm correct, it involved the Keystone Pipeline. I think, I think that's right. Uh, I wouldn't want to cast all the blame on the Bidens. Uh, I think that uh, most political processes uh, in states and in the federal government pay more attention to the, to the election cycle than they do to energy markets. Uh, and I think that even the Republicans, some Republicans at least, were nervous about spending political capital that they helped to spend elsewhere to support a project that went against the popular narrative, mm -hmm. sort of promulgated by the big media, what I call the cabal of Babel. So I think there's plenty of room, if you go back 20 years, to share the blame. Yeah, that's fair. Um, you mentioned a couple times narratives. Um, this is something I've actually talked about on this show. Um, you know, I had Dr. Ben Hunt on, and this is he talks often about narratives and. Can, what are some of like the narratives that are you think more mythology around energy? I mean, you could, if you want to, you know, narrow it down here in the U.S. What are those narratives for you today that are kind of circulating that are you just look at the and say this is mythology, this is farce? Uh, the sense that we're going to replace fossil fuels in the next twenty years or twenty-five years—it's um, a joke. The, the fact that we're going to replace them ever uh, if we don't increase. Uh, our nuclear fleet. The idea that you can stimulate supply for oil and gas in the United States in the near term uh, with political exhortation, while at the same time telling the oil industry that you're going to put them out of business in 2030. Why would domestic oil producers increase their production if you told them, in fact, guaranteed them that you were going to put them out of business? Uh, the list of fictional narratives uh, around energy is almost limitless. Yeah. What are, like, what are, can you give any, like, an example of what, like, there's, like, a lot of them have been called out, like, the oil 
companies, they get called out for being like greedy or whatnot. Like what are kind of the the economics of it, like from what you understand, like how it works? Because it's not like the person who owns the gas station can like lower the price or like what are what are the things that people aren't quite aware of when it comes to the economics of this space? I would ask uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, those companies to compare their cost of capital uh, and compare their operating margins uh, over a levelized period of time, which is to say like 20 years with big oil. <laughs> uh, and what you'll see is that the margins that are enjoyed by the en energy industry, first of all, are very variable. Their costs of capital uh, are fairly high and their operating margins relative to other industries aren't very high at all. Uh, so when the oil industry is called out for excessive profits, when people suggest that there should be an excess profits tax, I guess I'd be all for that uh, if there was a reduced profits rebate, which is to say uh, that the oil industry, as an example, during the COVID years, lost billions and billions and billions of dollars. For some reason, you didn't see the major media networks uh, or the administration propose to give the oil industry billion dollars in rebates on taxes that they had already been charged. So I would ask, uh, again, that the discussion uh, around things like that take place in the context of arithmetic rather than narrative. I like that. Take place in the context of arithmetic rather than narrative. Um, Rick, I've also heard you, because oh, you mentioned nuclear um, in this conversation, and I've heard you share like your thesis around uranium. Um, can you share with folks like what that is? Can you provide a bit of an overview on your thesis there? Sure. Um, first of all, it's important to note that nuclear energy, despite the fact that uh, at least two years ago, nobody liked it, uh, generates 40%, pardon me, 14% of total U.S. electricity consumed and 20% of baseload energy consumed. It's worthy to note, too, that this is reliable baseload energy that generates no carbon. So to the extent that people are concerned about carbon loadings, by the way, I'm one of those that is concerned about carbon loadings, uh, nuclear is uh, irreplaceable. The industry, according to the International Energy Agency, spends about $60 a pound, fully loaded. By fully loaded, I mean including cost of capital, general and administrative expense, uh, uh, prior year write-downs, uh, to produce a product that they sell for $50 a pound, which is to say the, the uranium industry worldwide loses about $10 a pound, fully loaded, uh, 125 or 130 million times a year. Now, what that means is if the uranium price doesn't go up enough to cover the cost of production, the world won't have any uranium and the world can't not have uranium. The oversupply circumstance that has existed for the last 10 or 12 years happened as a consequence, uh, of course, of the shutdown of the Japanese nuclear fleet, the second largest nuclear fleet in the world. It's interesting to note now that total worldwide consumption exceeds total worldwide consumption before Fukushima, which is to say we have made up for the Japanese shortfall by commissioning reactors, particularly in China, but also in Korea, Taiwan, places like that. And now uh, 
it appears as though Japan is restarting their nuclear fleet. So we're building reactors uh, around the world, not so much in developed nations, but around the world like mad and planned shutdowns in the United States, in Germany, in Sweden, in Britain and other places are being canceled. But the industry still loses money on every pound of uranium produced. So my suspicion is that the uranium price will at least exceed 60 US dollars a pound, which is to say the level that's necessary to sustain current production from current facilities. Much more likely, the price of uranium will exceed 70 or $75 a pound, which is the likely incentive price necessary to fund the capital investments to bring in much needed new supplies of uranium. My thesis is something is simply that if something has to happen, which it must, and can happen, <laughs> which it can, it will happen. Uh, and if you saw prices in uranium through 75 or $80 a pound, I think what you would see would be a real renaissance in the uranium mining business. And I think you will see that. Yeah. Um, a couple things there. Um, so your, your view is it'll exceed 60 US dollars. And you also mentioned could go to 75, 80. Um, when these other parts of the world um, that are bringing um, nuclear online, like China, um, Taiwan, you mentioned those. And then the, there are other ones that have canceled or shut down. My question is for the countries that may have canceled or shut down or kind of holding back or not investing in the space, what if they saw like in other parts of the world, the success, do you think that could be another catalyst to, you know, make them want to try nuclear? I think reality slapping a lot of folks in the face. Uh, the reality in Germany, uh, which is to say rolling brownouts and blackouts in the face of 500% higher electricity costs. I don't think this has to happen too many times before the elected politicians get spat on and slapped enough that they become pro-nuclear. Uh, remember, it isn't about the people, it's about the election cycle. Similarly, in the United States, the idea that the Department of Energy would, two short years after Biden threatened to shut down the nuclear industry, <laughs> decide instead to subsidize it. I mean, this is a pretty amazing turnaround in public opinion. In Japan, four or five years ago, a popular opinion poll, a widespread popular opinion poll, showed the citizenry to be 62% opposed to nuclear power. The same poll uh, commissioned this year showed the citizenry to be 61% in favor of nuclear power. What we're seeing is the triumph of reality over narrative. Yeah, I like that. The triumph of reality over narrative. It also makes me wonder, like, nuclear, like, the fact that it does, has zero carbon emissions, it makes me also wonder, like, for the folks who who like the benefits of fossil fuels um, because of what it brings, and then also the folks who want the alternatives, I wonder if this could be, like, that happy medium between the two camps, if you will. Certainly, you are seeing voices in the environmental community, including the co-founder of Greenpeace, uh, but other people who weren't necessarily a fan of either uranium or fossil fuels, like Bill Gates, uh, suggest that the only way out of our conundrum, uh, which is to say people's desire for material well-being in their lifetimes, uh, the only answer uh, involves a substantial increase 
in baseload power generation from nuclear. Remember that alternative energies uh, are intermittent, which is to say you have a problem uh, with solar in places where the sun doesn't shine or at night when the sun doesn't shine. And the cost of augmenting, uh, currently at least, that alternative energy with battery storage is too high. Uh, the other constraint with batteries, and believe me, uh, I'm in the mining business, I know this, is that the amount of mining that we're going to have to do to supply the critical elements for energy transmission, and in particular, battery storage, will blow people's minds. They will particularly blow the minds of the environmental community. The damage that we will have to do uh, as an industry to provide the lithium, the copper, the cobalt, the vanadium, the manganese, uh, to fuel this battery revolution, which makes alternative energies viable, will be highly problematic. It's also worthy to note that in the energy mix, in addition to nuclear, to support alternative energy, what we're going to have to have the do have the ability to do is to provide peaking energy, which is to say, a very reliable source of energy when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, and that's going to be natural gas, whether the big thinkers like it or not. Yeah, I also on the um, uranium thesis, I want to go back because you mentioned you made a comment about. Um, how it could kind of tee us up for a real renaissance in mining uh, for uranium. How would one go about, like, if they want, if they saw this as an investment thesis for themselves, like, how would one, how would one might want, might want to, like, express this investment thesis? How are you expressing it as an investment? Or how might, like, someone else who might be interested in it want to go about it? Well, please understand that now you've crossed me over the line to talking my own book. Okay. <laughs> Fair all enough. The we things, don't, have to, don't do all the things. No, I'm happy to do it. All, okay. But all the things that I would suggest other people do, I've done already. Uh, if you think the price of uranium is going to go up, buy some uranium. I don't mean physically in a barrel and put it in your basement. Uh, but you can buy the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, the disclosure of conflict. I'm the largest shareholder of Sprott. I benefit if you buy for management you know, fees. You could buy shares in the big uranium producers. The easiest one to wrap your head around would probably be Cameco. The best, although not easy to wrap your head around, is the Kazakh producer, Kazatomprom. Producer, uh, if you do a lot of work, which I have done, there are probably 12 or 13 companies worldwide that would be viable at 60 or $65 a pound. You could either do the research yourself or you could hold your nose and buy one of the uranium ETFs. I say hold your nose because the ETFs don't confine themselves to the 12 or 13 uh, viable uranium companies. They're market cap weighted and you probably get 30 or 35 companies, 15 or 20 of which are not viable at $60 a pound. The truth is that the <clears throat> ETF gives you the ability without doing very much work to buy the beta in the uranium market. And by beta, I define it as the outperformance of a group or basket of uranium stocks relative to the broad market over the next five years. And I think that delta, personally, will be fairly great. Got it. Um, how about, like, what What would you say are the biggest risks, um, the downside risks to your thesis? Like, what are those? Three, I get, well, two, really. Um, if 
somebody, <laughs> maybe in the Ukraine or Russia, uh, chucks uh, even a tactical nuclear weapon, I think that that will do a lot to create uh, a new, albeit false narrative, uh, about letting the genie out of the jar. More serious would be another plant failure, uh, another Chernobyl, uh, another Fukushima, even another Three Mile Island. Uh, that would damage the perception around the nuclear industry for a very long time, despite the reality that nuclear relative to other forms uh, of energy uh, has proven to be enormously safe uh, and efficacious. Yeah, that 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 would um, certainly mess with the perception. Um, <laughs> another area I want to bring up with you, because I know it's some a space that you've operated in for probably your whole investment career, and that's the precious metals uh, space and gold. I can't have you on the show and not ask you about gold, Rick. Um, what is your outlook today on gold, and what are kind of the catalysts that you're looking at? At the beginning of the show, I said that I look at the world through the prism of a credit analyst, which means I'm always concerned. Uh, gold has for centuries now sheltered people's pur purchasing power from the depredation by the state. Right now, confidence in the U.S. dollar is fairly high, high enough that you can sell a treasury, a 10-year treasury yielding 4% in a currency that's depreciating by 9% a year. My friend Doug Casey describes the U.S. dollar as, quote, the prettiest mare at the slaughterhouse. But I think that the dollar is only strong relative to uh, other currencies and not absolutely strong. And I say that for several reasons. The first is our bad habit of counterfeiting. Uh, the politicians call it quantitative easing, the creation of spurious uh, currency units unbacked by any form of economic growth. The second is uh, more concerning to me, uh, which is, uh, of course, debt and deficits. It's interesting to note that the United States dollar is strong despite the fact that the on-balance sheet liabilities of the federal government now exceed 31 trillion dollars. That's 31 with 12 zeros to keep it company, a mind-boggling number. More mind-boggling is the fact that the Congressional Budget Office, not some fat old bald libertarian named Rick Rule, but rather the Congressional Budget Office, suggests that the off-balance sheet liabilities of the U.S. federal government exceed $120 trillion. What's an off-balance sheet liability? You're looking at one. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all those promises that we as a people have made to each other that we haven't provided the means to pay for. So we have a net present value of $120 trillion in unfunded liabilities on top of on balance sheet liabilities of $31 trillion. And oh, yes, we also have federal, oh, pardon me, state and local government debts. This... Um, whole stack of debt is serviced by a federal government, which is to say uh, taxes and fees, less expenses, that is itself in deficit to the tune of about $2 trillion a year. So rather than having the means to amortize or service this debt, we are in fact adding to it 
on an ongoing basis. How do we solve this problem? I don't know. And for those reasons, I am doubtful about the maintenance of my purchasing power in instruments around U.S. dollars. But the most concerning thing to me is the fact that I have a government guarantee, the first one in my life that I believe in. The federal government guarantees me that if I buy a U.S. 10-year treasury, that they will pay me 4% a year in a currency that's losing 9% a year in purchasing power, which is to say the government absolutely positively guarantees me that if I loan them money today, they will give me back dramatically less in purchasing power 10 years from now. My friend Jim Grant calls this return-free risk. Return-free risk is not attractive to me. Through centuries, gold has retained its purchasing power uh, as governments have inflated away the purchasing power of honest workers. Uh, and for that reason, I continue to believe in gold. It's interesting that I myself own a reasonably large amount of gold, uh, despite the fact that a reasonable financial planner might say that I should own none as a consequence of my very large shareholdings, as an example, in Sprott and my ownership of gold stocks. But I own gold anyway because they allow me to sleep nights uh, and stay whole, stay uh, calm. I ironically, despite saying all of this to you, I personally would prefer the gold price to go down. I personally would prefer all of the things I'm afraid of uh, not coming to pass. I regard gold as insurance. And I don't want to get paid on this insurance policy anytime soon. It's like a life insurance policy in that regard. I'm happy to have the insurance, but I don't want to collect the prize. Uh, in fact, were the gold price to rise from its current level, 1650 or whatever it is, to 2200 or 2300, I probably wouldn't sell any if the underlying conditions hadn't changed. By contrast, if the gold price were to fall from 1650 to 1500, I'd probably buy a lot, which means it's in my interest probably to see the gold price lower rather than higher, because as I say, I regard it as an insurance asset. Yeah, um, like catastrophe insurance, if you will. Um, before I go a little bit further on gold, I just kind of want to go back to like, you explained like with the 10-year treasury um, that the government basically guarantees to pay you 4% in a currency that's losing 9% 10 years. Um, from now, and you quoted uh, Jim Grant, uh, you know, saying it's a return-free risk, and that's not attractive. Um, why would anybody want to buy a ten-year? Like, you know, I, I have a couple of uh, former clients now, just friends, former clients, because I've retired from regulated businesses like money management, and I've put that to them. Um, I know well a couple of family offices that have reasonably large holdings in U.S. treasuries. Mercifully, they have one or two-year treasuries, not 10-year treasuries. But I asked them, you know, I said, how do you feel uh, about a certificate of guaranteed confiscation? Uh, how do you feel about knowing that you're absolutely going to lose money on this? Uh, and one person put it particularly succinctly. Uh, he said, Rick, I would rather lose 5% than 15%. I'm afraid enough about private debt markets, particularly junk markets and equity markets, and I'm more concerned about other foreign markets, European markets or frontier and emerging markets, than I am the U.S. market. So in an arithmetic sense, I feel much better about losing 5% in a liquid security 
as opposed to losing 15 or 20 in illiquid securities. That's the rational response. Uh, I'm not sure that most savers in the United States have bothered to do the arithmetic, and I'm not sure that most savers in the United States don't actually believe the Fed and Biden when they say inflation is transitory, but I don't. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of just in inflation and, you know, the Fed raising rates to tackle inflation, do you think they'll be successful in curbing inflation? I hope so. Uh, it is a real political tight walk because you curb inflation by reducing confidence. <laughs> uh, you tame the animal spirits. Also, to really curb inflation, you have to raise, rein in government expenditures. Uh, and what you find uh, in the voting populace is that programs that benefit you are necessary and defensible, and programs that benefit others are waste and fraud and abuse. So it's difficult to me to see a circumstance where it's politically palatable, ironically, to rein in inflation. Uh, what you want uh, as a voter is to reduce your cost of living uh, while sloughing off increasing amounts of costs on others. And that whole process is inflationary. Yeah. Um, and also in the context of this conversation, you did bring up um, debt and deficits, and you listed like some really mind-boggling numbers, as you put it. And my question for you, Rick, is when you go through numbers like that, and you said like you don't know like what the solution is, but I mean, how do you stay optimistic in the long term? Because is that ever going to come due at some point? Uh, I think it is going to come due. You know, we <clears throat> we dealt with it in the 70s through really quantum inflation. Uh, in other words, we inflated away the net present value of the liability. And it would appear that that's what we're doing today uh, to the extent that you've promised people benefits uh, and you give them nominal value benefits in an inflated currency, that's one thing to do. The other thing that I think probably occurs in the next 10 years uh, is that we have a partial return to sanity. Um, I'm not trying to say that Reagan did everything that he said he was going to do. He didn't reduce the size of the federal government. But what he did do is all the way through the Carter years, reduce the growth in the size of the federal government so that the underlying economy uh, was able to catch up with the stupidity of the 60s and the 70s. And my suspicion is that we will survive the circumstance that we uh, are faced with now uh, three ways. We'll inflate away the net present value of much of the liability we will be a little less insane uh, with regards to the growth in government. And hopefully your generation will take the opportunity to say no to some of the unfunded liabilities. Uh, while I intend to collect my Social Security check, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to begin to contribute it. And by the way, I'm going to contribute every check to various anti-government organizations <laughs> in the United States. Uh, but there's no particular reason that I can think of why very young people who didn't make promises to old people like me should feel obligated to honor them. I think uh, uh, 
erasing some of the liabilities uh, that were promised to other people, some of the entitlements that are currently unfundable, uh, would be, if nothing else, a return to honesty. Yeah, a return to honesty. Politi politically unpalatable. Uh, you know, uh, President uh, Trump, uh, in uh, trying to appeal to the sensibilities of older conservative voters, said he wouldn't tamper with Social Security at all, except to increase it. Now, you need to describe that statement as either unwitting, which is to say he was either stupid or dishonest. There isn't uh, a lot of political will on either side of the aisle to say to people who were stupid enough to believe that they're going to get benefits which society can't afford to tell them that they're going to get it. Your generation has to say, we didn't authorize this. We can't afford it. Too bad. Strong letter to follow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've heard um, like Stan Druckenmiller and Ken Lingone talk about this. Like it's it's absurd that it's not means tested. And they I think Stan Druckenmiller and at least back in 2013, when I first covered it, described it as like generational theft. Um, so that's great that's that you're is. donating your checks. That's exactly what it is. It's intergenerational theft. That's precisely what it is. By the way, uh, this will get us both a lot of hate mail. So let's go ahead That's and do okay. it. It's, uh, all good. it's also it's also ridiculously racist. The idea that poor young black Americans, male Americans, with an average life expectancy of sixty four years, pay in through tax and social security contributions to subsidize the dotage of old rich white females who have an average life expectancy of eighty eight years is something that if the literate and numerate parts of society examined uh, from a fairness point of view, they would throw out as racist. Similarly, the forgiveness of student debt, which benefits largely uh, middle class and largely Caucasian kids, comes at a cost to uh, historically disadvantaged communities, if that's the right woke phrase. The idea really that you have an, as, an asset transfer from classes of society that didn't have access to information in favor of those, as, those elements of society that did have access to information is elitist and racist and needs to be looked at in that regard. Yeah, certainly, um, you know, highlight some of these issues. Um, back to gold. Um, my question for you is like, how would one, and maybe it's talking the book again, but how would one want to express like their interest in gold? Is it through miners? Is it an ETF? Or do you go and actually buy the physical gold? Like there are different ways to play it. How, how do you, how does one play it? I always start an investment thesis where I can, uh, if I've identified something that I think has to go up in price <laughs> by owning that thing, which is to say, I build a go I start building a gold portfolio by owning gold. Now you can own it physically, which I do, uh, or you can buy some of the high-quality exchange-traded pieces of paper. I, again, talking my book, believe that the highest-quality exchange-traded physical gold surrogate is the Sprott Physical Gold Trust uh, because uh, it isn't leveraged and we don't take depository receipts or anything like that, only physical gold. There's no promises of gold. There is simply gold. If you want to get away from gold as an insurance class and look at gold as an investment class, 
then you buy the biggest and the best of the gold equities. Start with, uh, I would say, names like Franco Nevada, the big royalty owner. Move then one step down in quality, but not very far down, uh, Wheaton Precious, which is a royalty and streaming company. Then buy the best and the biggest of the best. Names like Barrick, perhaps Newmont, uh, Agnico Eagle. Uh, and if you want to move beyond investing to speculating, then there are a whole range of uh, other majors, intermediates, and juniors. But understand, uh, when you go below the best of the best, you are no longer investing. You're speculating. I happen to love speculating, but I work at it. I'm very risk tolerant, and I'm also very tolerant of volatility. It could be said that the easiest way to play gold, once again, is to play the beta, which is to say buy the physical gold uh, and then buy one of the ETFs. My preference would be, of course, that you bought one of the Sprott ETFs. But the truth is that the whole waterfront of ETFs, if you buy ETFs around the biggest and the best producers, will give you access to the beta in the gold markets without having to do the work that would be incumbent on you if you were going to invest in individual companies. Gotcha. Um, again, like so grateful to have you on with your expertise. And I also just need to ask you, because I know folks are going to want this too. What are your views on silver? You know, uh, they say silver is a poor man's gold. Uh, I like silver as a speculation. And I'm uh, going to begin to build my silver hoard now because so many people don't like it. It's disappointed them so much that it's unpopular. Uh, and I always like to be lonely. Uh, what I've noticed about silver is it's much more volatile than gold, but it's a late cycle mover. Uh, gold has to create the momentum in the market. Gold has to manifest the saver's uncertainty. When that happens, perhaps because of its lower unit cost, uh, silver is a late cycle mover. But when it begins to move, it moves further and faster than gold. And probably the most volatile uh, of the natural resource investments that I know of are the higher quality silver equities. There simply is not enough market capitalization in the silver equity space to accommodate the inflow of generalist capital that happens during precious metals bull markets. My friend Doug Casey described the result as trying to siphon Hoover Dam through a garden hose. Uh, fairly good-sized companies can yield 500 or 600 or 700 percent price moves in very short periods of time, two or three years. But the time that you have to wait for the unleashing of that sort of <laughs> latent energy and the amount of volatility that you have to endure until it begins can be unnerving. I happen to have very strong nerves. So the speculative part of me, which is a big part of me, enjoys silver, but in particular enjoys the silver equities. Yeah. Let me ask you a very basic question, because um, I, I like that you describe yourself as an investor and a speculator. Um, can you explain that, like wh why those kind of terms and maybe some of the subtleties or the differences? My definition, and you'll read a very different one on Wikipedia, my definition of an investor is someone who deploys capital in the rational expectation of adequate returns of capital employed 
given a range of economic circumstances that he or she sees as a probability. So understand that the probabilities have to be on your side, the time frames have to be reasonable, and your return expectations have to be reasonable. This is what Warren Buffett does for a living oh so well. The speculator is someone different. Uh, the speculator is someone who is looking for above average returns, but is willing to accept that the outcome is a possibility rather than a probability. In other words, taking more risk, accepting more uncertainty, but as a consequence, demanding higher returns. For about 40 years, I have suggested to people that they invest, that they build a base before they speculate. I, of course, did exactly the wrong thing. Uh, all of the money that I made, which enabled me to invest sensibly, came from speculating, occasionally fairly recklessly. But I got very lucky and I worked very hard. So I would suggest that most people invest before they speculate and then only speculate with the amount of money that they have both the intestinal fortitude and the financial staying power uh, to consider to be at risk. Yeah. Well, Rick, um, I think the viewers who suggested having you on were spot on because I've really enjoyed this conversation. And before I let you go, I want to pass it back to you. Can you tell folks where they can find you or learn more? Um, so I'm going to hand it back to you now. Yeah, three things. If people care really what I think about natural resource investments, they can find out personalized. If you go to my website, ruleinvestmentmedia.com, and list your natural resource stocks, please, no crypto, please, no tech stocks, please, no pot stocks, just natural resource stocks. I'll personally rank them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. I'll comment on individual issues if I think my comments might have value. In addition to that, uh, you may know that I'm building a new bank, the seventh bank startup of my career. Uh, called Battle Bank, a uh, successor to Everbank, which we helped build and sold years ago. If you care about better banking, uh, if you'd like in particular to borrow against your precious metals holdings, or if you'd like your deposits to pay you in the top decile of U.S. interest rate payers while securing liquid physical precious metals, in the comments section at Rural Investment Media, write bank. Finally, if you're an accredited investor and you want to know for free what private placements I'm participating in and why. By the way, no guarantee that just because I got in, you'll get in. But if you are an accredited investor and you care about what I'm doing with my own money in private placements, in the question and comment section at Rural Investment Media, write placements. So that's ranking bank placements, all at ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Well, I love it. Rick Roll, really enjoyed this conversation. We'll have to have you back on um, again soon. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for working hard and asking me good questions. Excellent. Take care. Really enjoyed it. All right.